I, I personally think it's the most difficult profession in the world to make a film, make a good project. Your sister hasn't found yet. Are you bothered, 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 bothered sick? I feel like I was put on this really, really, really tall horse. And either you fall and kill yourself or, or, you, or you ride. And then finally we managed somehow ride this horse, but it's, it was tremendously difficult. You are listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women arrived at where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And this week, we'd like to introduce you to Hannah Polak. My name is Hannah Polak, and I come from Poland. She's a documentary filmmaker, photographer, and activist, who, as you heard, comes from Poland. But we met her in Columbia, Missouri, at True Falls Film Festival, where she had the U.S. premiere of her feature documentary, Something Better to Come, which takes place in the suburbs of Moscow. On the largest garbage dump in Europe, which is really, really huge. This film is centered around a young girl, Eula, and the life she lives in this garbage dump. Richard Linklater's Oscar-winning film, Boyhood, was shot over 12 years, and it's talked about as having documentary elements because we witness the main character, who's an actor, grow up. But Something Better to Come was shot over a span of 14 years. We truly watched Eula grow up. This is her life. In addition to Something Better to Come, which screened at IDFA in Amsterdam in 2014, Hannah has directed a number of films, including her 2005 Oscar-nominated short film, The Children of Leningradsky. Her first film, titled Owl, honored legendary documentary filmmaker Albert Mazels when he received his Lifetime Achievement Award in Poland. But as you know, we like to start from the beginning, when Hannah wasn't directing, but being directed. She was 19 and enrolled in a prestigious theater school in Poland. I was performing on the stage, on the professional stage of a professional theater, and we were dancing there and singing and performing. And we play in a Russian rock opera, which was called Yunona and Avos. Uh, it's by Rybnikov and Wozniesiński, and it was a really, really big hit in Russia. Um, the best Russian artists were performing in it in, on the Russian stages, and the music was just amazing. Keep in mind, this is a Polish theater company doing a Russian play. And instead of having the play translated, they kept it as is and used the Russian original. So it was a very uh, kind of like exotic experience for me, but also very deeply went into my kind of like soul myself, you know. And, uh, and I think it was kind of like the beginning for me of uh, getting through the Russian culture. This opportunity was incredible, and Hannah really loved the theater but she always had film in the back of her mind. I felt that uh, theater is something very temporary, something which you can only play at this moment and it's gone. But with the film, you can basically make it eternal, no, maybe eternal. It's, of course, a very uh, big word and it can be seen all over the world and, you know, it can be seen years after. I know some people love to perform, they love living audience. 
but I think there is also this amazing magic in the in the film. But Hannah's exposure to Russian culture wasn't forgotten. It stuck. Eventually, she wasn't acting in a Russian play in Poland. Hannah was in Russia. There was many, many children living and staying at the streets at this time. It was like re- literally hundreds and thousands of children on the streets of Moscow. Hannah saw these young faces without homes and without parents who cared. And she saw the way they fought and drank and begged for money in the train stations. Many of them would buy glue and inhale it to get high. But what really moved her was this dichotomy between the way they laughed and played like children and the way they loved each other and took care of each other like adults. And so she started to assemble people, a small team that could provide help. As they got more involved and more organized, they decided to rent a small apartment in Moscow, right next to the train stations, where most of these children lived and gathered. Very soon we had uh, quite many of these children staying in our apartment, but the goal for this program was to support children, to help them to get out of the street. So I'd never try to be become like a parent for the child, or um, it, it was not going to be a permanent situation. It was only a temporary situation. I'm not a Russian citizen. I cannot give them schooling, proper schooling. I cannot deal with the papers. And of course, we delivered some food to the railway station, some uh, toiletries, you know, some toothbrushes. We would take children to the hospitals. But we always, the main thing was always to motivate them. I remember one day the children at the railway station told me there is one guy who is making a movie about us and he is a director and he studied in VGIK, in the cinematography school. VGIK, or the Gerasimov Institute of Cinematography, is one of the oldest film schools in the world. And the children thought to bring this school and this man's existing project to Hannah's attention because Hannah herself had actually started filming them. And the children told me uh, about this uh, director, so they organized the meeting <laughs> and they told me, why don't you go and learn? Why don't you go and study? So Hannah visited the school, and when she found out that Vadim Yusov and Andrei Tarkovsky, two very respected and accomplished Russian filmmakers, were teachers that year, she knew she wanted to be there. Hannah applied. Tchaikovsky saw her work. And he said, yes, absolutely, I accept you as a student. So basically, I would say that um, children told me to go and learn, so I did. It's just, you know, it's, it's always a two-way relationship. You're trying to give something to people and the people also give something to you. And it's not like you expect to be given something, but it's always something, you know, something amazing happening in life. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a huge increase in homelessness especially for the children of Russia. In the early 2000s, there was an estimated 30,000 children living in Moscow train stations, one of which was Leningradsky Station, the main location of Hannah's short documentary, The Children of Leningradsky. But Hannah also traveled to the outskirts of the city, to the garbage dump. And while the children and people she met 
called the garbage dump home, they are still part of the homeless population in Russia and are in a few scenes of the children of Leningradsky. But there was one little girl with bright blue eyes and white blonde hair that Hannah was most drawn to. Her name was Eula. And for the next 14 years, Eula would be the subject of Hannah's feature documentary titled Something Better to Come. In both The Children of Leonard Gratsky and Something Better to Come, Hannah achieves incredible access with her subjects. And subjects almost feels like the wrong word to use in this case. It's more like a friendship than anything. And although she doesn't appear on screen, Hannah is a character herself. In a memorable scene in Something Better to Come, Eula's mom, Tanya, is sitting in the dark under a shelter they have built, and it's raining outside. She's looking right into the camera and confides in Hannah, addressing her by her first name in a way you would only do with people you are close with. Hannah asks Tanya, whose fault do you think it is, referring to the situation of them being in the garbage dump. Tanya responds, I think it's all my fault. But if you look at it from a different angle, Hannah, it's not really our fault. We came here with Eula to join her father, but he became gravely ill here, and he suffered from tuberculosis. After this scene, we see a montage with Eula and her young friends, smoking cigarettes, using mascara they most likely found at the dump, drinking vodka, but there's a beauty to the whole scene. And it's not poverty porn. Let's be clear about that. It's real. It's their life. And it's not being romanticized. We're watching Eula grow up, year by year. And we're relating to many of these actions. But it's the location on a huge garbage dump that separates these teenage experiences that Eula's having from many of our own. And as the film progresses, you become more worried for her and her future. There's a similar feeling in The Children of Lenin Gradsky, where Hannah exists with the homeless children in the underbelly of the city. She's physically on their level, and you can just sense that they consider her one of them, their equals. We learn they are around 12 years old, but they look no older than eight. Again, drinking vodka, smoking cigarettes, playing and sleeping between two hot water pipes underground, their only source of warmth. But there they are, laughing and joking. And somehow, the innocence of childhood still exists for them. What else have the kids taught you? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, I learned a lot about life. Uh, not only from children, also from adults, from homeless people. But uh, been, um, I think the main lesson which they told taught me is is that uh, the humanity is endless, the beauty of a person is endless, is that we have to be very careful with judging people because they have their uh, life, lives and uh, situations and we tend to kind of forget and, uh, and concentrate on things which have no value, really. And when you are completely void of these things, when you are kind of in a situation when you have to strive fight for survival doesn't make them less a human. Sometimes it makes them more a human because the other values in life are more important. The life is very straightforward. There is no time for this kind of duplicity and things like this. You can die any moment. 
I don't want to try to make um, from poor people uh, some kind of ideal society or something like this, but you have to support each other because uh, it's, uh, it's a place in which otherwise you will not be able to survive. note signals the arrival of our partner, Story and Heart, who is offering $25 off their online academy to She Does listeners for a limited time. If you're a self-taught filmmaker, you know how frustrating it is to find resources online. But Story and Heart Academy offers one place to find advice from seasoned professionals. You can expand your knowledge of everything, from narrative structure and cinematography to field audio and art direction. So head over to shedoespodcast.com academy to redeem this offer. That's shedoespodcast.com slash academy. I'll see you there. The garbage dump in Something Better to Come, as you can imagine, is extremely filthy and dangerous. It's where all the unwanted things are discarded. There's heavy machinery moving God knows what, stirring up debris and hazardous material. There's rape, crime, disease, and sometimes death. Oftentimes I would go alone or I had just only a couple people who from time to time would go with me. So I always thought that it's, it's smart to have somebody who would at least accompany you, especially boy, men. Otherwise uh, you kind of put jeopardizing uh, another life, which is even more complicated. Maybe you will need to defend the person. But there was many occasions when no one could go with me, so I would go just alone. They feel so abandoned, they feel so much rejected by society. It's actually a very painful uh, feeling for them. You know, it's, it's actually like, a, like a something which they really cry about. They feel, they feel totally rejected by society. And when they see somebody coming from outside, I think it is a little bit like a, you know, like a, like a representation of the external world, the appreciation. And they were my friends and they could also feel it, that I am not just making a film about this, that I really love of the jokes they say that I really, you know, cry with them and and worry about uh, some things which are happening. And so it was like a normal relationship of friends, of, of, of somebody who you know and you are wishing well this person. Many moments Hannah spent with these people are not actually seen on film. They are moments that she did not pick up the camera and hit record. But they are times that live vividly in her mind. I had quite few instances in my life when I couldn't turn on the camera. Certainly not everything has to be on the camera. There are many moments like this in life. I mean, we are talking about this particular film, but I think there are moments like this. I remember when I was invited by Ricky Leacock to visit him. Ricky Leacock was a documentary pioneer, and he worked alongside big names like Maisels, Pennebaker, and Drew. Those of the direct cinema school. He co-founded the film program at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hannah met Ricky through her first documentary short, Al, a tribute to Al Mazels. 
And he told me, before I die, you have to come and visit me. And I said, I promise. But I couldn't keep the promise for a long time. And then my, one day I organized my my trip to Bristol, to Paris, and I stopped in Paris. And and I asked Valerie, his partner, his wife, and I asked Valerie, I said, Valerie, can I take the camera? And she didn't reply to this email. So I didn't take the camera. And of course, when I arrived there, Valerie told me, you know, Ricky is sometimes forgetting things and I wasn't sure if he will be feeling comfortable or if you will be feeling comfortable, but I, but knowing you, I also didn't want to tell you no. And of course, this is uh, amazing images are in my heart, in my, my mind. They are not on the camera, but I remember how I even entered the building and I saw all these chairs uh, because he was living in, on, he was 1992, I don't know, he was 90-something, and he was living on the fourth floor of this uh, high-ceiling uh, French old building in the middle of Paris. And uh, Valérie put for him a chair every few steps so he could rest. So all these different, colorful, strange chairs were, and then I knew already that's okay, this must be his apartment, his, his, his house, his, the place where he's living, this building. And then I remember how uh, Ricky said to me, uh, you know, like he was talking about this, how he used to keep the camera um, against his head. It is not your shoulders as most of the camera and keep the camera on the shoulders. He said, I always press it against my head because this is the most kind of stable uh, thing which God gave me. And Valeria said, well, I keep my camera always um, kind of very closely to my tits. And uh, Ricky said, oh, how lovely. And I was thinking, oh, this is such a sweet, amazing moment of love between these two not young people. But he, very young, it was a spirit, with a love, with a heart, and um, yeah, and, and and you know, and these things, maybe you sometimes don't need to film. Maybe you sometimes have to put your camera down. Maybe you sometimes have to let the things go. And this is also a part of a relationship. I feel, also with the people of the garbage dump, also with you, because you're killing also something with the camera. If you're shooting all the time, you're not allowing for this kind of other part of your relationship to to kind of flourish, to, to take place. Ricky Leacock died at his home in Paris in March 2011. In documentary, a lot of the film is made in the edit room, piecing scenes together, juxtaposing shots, building a story that makes sense. You know, I have edited previously films, other films, and uh, one of the previous films which I have edited, uh, everybody loved the editing. It was very entertaining, fast. I did it in one month. It was a very hard work. I didn't sleep for one month, but uh, I edited 56, let's say, minute film. So I was thinking with this film, if I did this one in one month, maybe this one will take me three months. I was very wrong. It took me three and a half years. Hundreds of versions. Hannah had quite a few editors that worked on this project. And even those with a lot of experience and accolades resigned when they saw how much material there was. 14 years of material and how difficult it was, the subject matter. 
Hannah wanted to find an editor, but nobody was coming through. So for a while, she just shut the door. And I was listening to different music. I was watching different movies to get some inspiration. I was listening to some, like, like for example, I remember there was a moment when I was watching again and again the film from Mao to Mozart. It's about Isaac Stern's um, first visit in China after the Cultural Revolution. When, when I started to build the chronology, it was kind of boring. But then when I broke the chronology, it was confusing. Yula changes color of her hair. You cannot recognize her. There is this material missing. There is like, uh, the, you have all these other characters which you want to put. Uh, it's a constant struggle. Should this film be just about Yula? When I edited this only about Yula, I found out it's empty. It was a period of trial and error, of experimentation. Hannah tried everything. She included sequences created by editors from previous years, editors who had come and gone. The structure was endlessly evolving. But one day, Hannah got a call from a friend, Marcin Kot-Biskowski. He was a busy editor, but he invited Hannah to attend a workshop put on by the Polish Society of Editors, where you share and discuss different works. At this time, Hannah had a 96-minute cut of her film. And he invited me for this event, and I came for this event like 300 kilometers. And I had this one thing in my mind. I have to see these uh, editors because maybe one of them will be the one. But I didn't think about my friend, you know. <laughs> and I came, but nothing cl like click, you know. I did not connect with any of these other editors. And after the, this presentation, this my friend, he came up to me and he said, okay, so let's go, let's have a coffee. Then in the evening he said, okay, so maybe tomorrow you come to my editing room and you bring this 96 minutes and show me what you have done. And I came and uh, he started to watch it and he said, oh, here, this is really, really great. But this one, oh, you made this mistake here. You know, like, listen, we do it in a different way. We do it like this. And I was thinking, my God, he's not even on this project and he's already telling me <laughs> what we will do. <laughs> so I said, you know, uh, but sorry, Cod, you know, wait. <laughs> and then actually we end up finally working together and it was an amazing co collaboration. Finding an editor is almost like finding a life partner. You have to trust them with this thing you put all your heart and soul and resources into. In Hannah's case, your 14-year-old baby. Sometimes Hannah and her editor would switch roles, just as parents take on different responsibilities and trade off duties. Eventually, he had to move on to a different project, but Hannah would send him cuts and he would give feedback. He was always involved. He would be on another project, but he would still think about this project because this would not allow him to go, because you had to solve so many things in the editing. You had to be so creative in the editing. You had to find the ways how to connect this. It's, I, I, I kind of have a comparison, like if you would have huge puzzles, because materials from 14 years is like hundreds of hours of the materials, some big, some small, and you have no idea where they fit. You don't have the final picture or so you don't know what you're building. And out of all these materials, you try to make a... You, you, can, you can make many pictures, but you try to make the one. And then sometimes you have it quite, you know, quite there, like a draft, and many of the puzzles fit. And then you find one small puzzle and you put it, and then it changes the picture. Then you see that you have to change many, many things. 
I feel like I was put on this really, really, really tall horse. And either you fall and kill yourself or, or, you, or you ride. And then finally we managed somehow ride this horse, but it's, it was tremendously difficult. It is such a stressful thing. It's, I, I, I personally think it's the most difficult profession in the world to make a film, make a good project. Sometimes you get something fast and easy, but I think many of the great pieces of art were created with a lot of pain, with a lot of uh, effort, with a lot of stress. And I think it goes for every art, for music, for... Mm, sometimes it's given and it's easy, but sometimes you really give birth in this terrible pain. You know, like you, you look like how the, the how you call this animal, which is living in the forest? Owl? Let's say owl, yeah. <laughs> Elaine, an owl? <laughs> I was thinking more like a deer or a wolf. I love owls. Okay, we'll just go with owl. And then you see how the mother is giving the birth, and then this kind of legs come out, you know, this long legs, very strange ones, and then something in the beginning quite ugly comes out, you know. <laughs> You know, but then actually, slowly, 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 and then it comes down, and this ugly duck becomes a beautiful swan. You know. But I think also once you go through something like this, it makes you stronger. Because then you start to have a very good experience and then you know your... Uh, you kind of know how far you can push the boundaries. And I think, you know, it's not up to me to judge how, how it is, what is the outcome on the end, but... But, uh, yeah, I think you can. You can learn things, you can find it in yourself. We'd like to thank Hannah for finding the time in the middle of the True-False bustle to sit down and talk with us. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out how you can see Hannah's films, including her feature film, Something Better to Come. It will be playing at many festivals this year, but Hannah would love to hear from you if you would like to organize a screening in your town or if you're interested in helping Eula directly. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon, and sound design was by our good friend Billy Wrasnick. We'd also like to give a big thank you to True False Film Festival, which takes place in Columbia, Missouri. Over the next few months, scattered amongst our regular guests, we'll be featuring interviews we collected while at True False. I'm so excited about this, and I should say I'm from Columbia, Missouri, and I've grown up with this festival, so I may be a bit biased, but I'm so proud of the way those behind this festival have never ceased to explore and challenge ideas around documentary. Another cool thing about this festival? They bring in buskers from all over the place a wide range of musicians that you'll find playing before films, 
at the nightly showcases, and on the street corners as you rush from one film to another. So we decided to bring a true-false busker to you. The music you heard in today's episode is by Taryn Blake Miller, who plays under the moniker Your Friend. Taryn comes from Kansas, and she describes her music as a well-intentioned handshake. Before things are recorded, which is kind of like my favorite part, you're getting to see them evolve because they're not permanent yet. You know, it's like you hand somebody a name tag and a Sharpie and you write your name, you get one chance. You know, it's like you write it down and that's that's how it's going to look all night. That's how it's going to look to Jared and Katrina. You know, it's like, that's your name tag. That's it. And that's how I feel like a record is. You know, like once you record something that's that's what's out in the world now you know and so the process before that is really exciting and also risky because you're playing uh, almost unsolved puzzles you know like you're you're kind of figuring it out as you as you go when we were in the studio some songs completely changed because I was doing it one shot in the studio. Like, how natural does this feel? Let me go back and redo it as if I'm not on a click track or if, if I'm not doing a, a song structure. I'm just doing it as if I were performing for people right now. How would this go? Because you can't stop. You can't stop in the middle of it and say like, Oh, hang on, I want to go back to this part. No, you have to just do it. So that's kind of how I like to approach it because there is that kind of sense of follow through. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com slash music for more information on Taryn's work. If you'd like to support She Does Podcasts and Sarah and I, head over to iTunes and tell us what you think through a rating and review. Thanks so much for listening to She Does. She Does.